This Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing will come to order. When Americans had to be evacuated around the world at the start of the COVID pandemic, consular affairs officers worked day and night to help them get home. When grandparents who are nationals of another country want to visit their American grandchildren, consular affairs officers interview them at posts abroad and process their visa applications. When American citizens like Brittany Griner are detained or arrested unjustly abroad, consular officers are often the first to visit them in prison. And when my constituents in New Jersey and those of every member of this committee need to renew their passports, consular affairs officers process their applications. So Assistant Secretary Bitter, while I know your team probably gets more angry phone calls than any other foreign service officer, I wanna start by saying we do appreciate the work that you and all of those who work with you do, often under incredibly demanding circumstances. For better or for worse, many Americans' only interaction with the State Department is getting or renewing a passport, leading to some of those frustrating phone calls. I don't need to tell you that the current backlog has people waiting upwards of three months for their passports, not even including shipping time. In March, Secretary Blinken said you were getting close to half a million passport applications a week, putting you on track to beat last year's records of processing almost 22 million passports. Even so, my office has been inundated with calls from constituents concerned about receiving their passports before they travel. Last week, we had nearly 50 open cases helping constituents get their passports. Whether it's a last-minute family emergency or their first international trip since COVID restrictions were lifted, Americans should not be experiencing such extended wait times, especially during the busy summer travel season. So I applaud Secretary Blinken's decision to establish a task force to speed up wait times. I know that the department is hiring more staff, and I know the staff you do have are working overtime, uh, but we need to find out what else we can do to help you achieve the goal we all want. What are we doing to improve the online passport renewal initiative? I'd also like to hear about your work processing visas. Counselor officers, uh, affairs officers in embassies overseas are the sole people, sole people responsible for conducting visa interviews. Very often uh, I'm told uh, by individuals, well, the ambassador said, no, the consular officer has the final say on what visas are. Not only are they often overloaded and work long hours, their work is sometimes literally life and death. Take the recent success story of Seema Baraksi, an Afghan woman whose son served as a combat interpreter helping U.S. Special Forces hunt down the Taliban. Following the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan, she and her family were targeted by the new government. They left notices at her abandoned home and questioned her neighbors. For two years, my office worked with Consular Affairs to help Seymour and her family reach the United States, as promised. Thankfully, just last week, she finally touched down in San Francisco after a tumultuous departure from Pakistan. And there are many more stories, some heroic and some more mundane airlifting someone for medical relief, getting a grandmother to her grandchild's baptism or bris, and some more practical, helping American businesses get their employees they need for success, whether hiring for Maury's peers in New Jersey or a data engineer assisting a new startup. 
making sure international students get visas to attend American universities in a timely manner. Because in addition to the billions of dollars these students bring to our communities, they also enrich the fabric of our nation. I know you've been under strain, and I want to hear what, if any, additional resources or assistance you need to continue to provide these vital services. We have to ensure that the United States remains the top destination for the world's smartest brains and hardest workers. And we need to make sure we keep our nation's promises, not only to those who serve with our soldiers and in our diplomatic officers, but to those wrongfully detained Americans who deserve regular consular access. Putin's government has twice now refused consular access to Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershovich. That is simply unacceptable. And Assistant Secretary Bitter, I urge you and the State Department to keep pushing Moscow on this point. Um, I will just close. I, I, I often get calls on a Thursday that says, I just looked at my passport and um, I need to travel to a wedding on Sunday. And I said, well, I'm not Houdini. Uh, so uh, we try to help. And your New York office, by the way, is incredibly, incredibly uh, tremendous work effort that they have and very helpful. But we actually held a press, a, 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 um, a press conference, a workshop, look before you leave, uh, so that people look at their passports uh, well before they are thinking of traveling and uh, find out whether or not they are in need of a new passport because you need, not only does it have to be still um, uh, valid, but it has to be valid for at least six months uh, beyond. So most people don't know that, and so uh, we work all the time trying to make that case back at home. Uh, so I appreciate the work that you do. We just want to see how we make it uh, all do better. A better sense of all the good the consular affairs does for the country is part of what I hope the hearing to be, but also to determine how we can do better. With that, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member for his remarks. Well, thank you, Assistant Secretary Bitter, <clears throat> for being here today. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I get those calls too, but usually it's at four o'clock on Friday afternoon, not on Thurs Thursdays. <laughs> Thursday's a luxury, you know. Uh, <laughs> in any event, um, thank you for the important work you do, and it is critically important for a vast swath of Americans who uh, partake of these services. Uh, I've, uh, at the at the uh, request of the department, when I was overseas, I actually sat in on some of the interviews that uh, uh, the frontline people over there do when they're issuing visas, and I was incredibly impressed with their ability and, uh, and the uh, efficiency and, uh, and uh, respect that they carry out their job, and uh, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, having said that, Americans is a, uh, have been struggling to get passports for years now and waiting weeks longer than they did before the pandemic, as the chairman has pointed out. Foreigners have to wait months, sometimes years, to visit the United States. These uh, delays directly hurt American industry, slow economic growth, and delay re uh, reuniting families. Uh, this is especially true uh, in my state of Idaho, where our main major manufacturers, like Micron Technology, have trouble getting visas for workers who are desperately needed to stay ahead of their competition, or our farmers who have problems getting visas for seasonal ag workers, and our world-class resorts have trouble attracting tourists who can't get visas uh, to vacation in Idaho. And as the chairman has referred to, and I'm sure every member of this committee uh, has dealt with calls from constituents to, to help in that regard. Uh, I understand there, there was a backlog that developed during COVID and the department is still digging out, but let's be clear, the department uh, time and time again 
uh, has failed to plan for the crisis and instead becomes a victim of them, this needs to change. Uh, given all of this, uh, I was uh, particularly frustrated when I watched the evacuation uh, from Sudan, and Sudan wasn't the first problem I've uh, had with State Department evacuations. Uh, I was, as a lot of people were horrified by the catastrophic evacuation of, of Afghanistan. Our evacuation in Kiev also left much to be desired, particularly in terms of getting people back in when we opened up. Uh, if, if I sound a little frustrated, it's because I am. A uh, hearing like this should be about highlighting the great work that the State Department does to serve the American people. Every American gets their passport from the State Department. Every American whose family member needed a visa to be reunited with a loved one uh, must work with the State Department. Every American adopting a child internationally or alternatively who is fighting to bring a, a parentally abducted child back home must go through state. The same office, the Office of Children's Issues, serves both of these purposes, but woefully continues to miss the mark in true service to Americans. When Americans get in trouble abroad, it's the State Department that should be there to help, and we often contact them to do so. To be clear, there is, there is much to celebrate in the Bureau of Consular Affairs, and more broadly with our hardworking consular officers working across the world. However, I'm afraid the problems right now currently outweigh the successes, and the cheerleading uh, regarding the service uh, must be tempered, as we've said here now, uh, by the reality on the ground today. So with that, again, thank you for being here. We're anxious to hear how you're gonna fix all this. Thank you. Thank you. Our witness today is Assistant Secretary Raina Bitter, who prior to assuming her role in August of 2021, was the Dean of the Leadership and Management School of the Foreign Service Institute. In addition, she has served from 2016 to 2020 as the U.S. Ambassador to the Lao People's Democratic Republic. Her Washington experience includes tours in the Executive Secretariat, Special Assistant to Secretary of State Colin Powell, Director of the State Department Operations Center. She has served overseas as Council General in Ho Chi Minh City, Consulate Chief in Amman, Jordan, non-immigrant visa chief in London, as well as tours in uh, Bogota and Mexico City. She is a career senior foreign service officer and joined the State Department in 1994. We thank you for your service. We thank you for appearing here today. Your full statement will be included in the record without objection. I'd ask you to summarize it in about five minutes or so because uh, there's a fair amount of uh, member interest who want to have a conversation with you. Right. Madam Secretary, you're free to start. Thank you very much, and thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and esteemed members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss the work of the State Department's Bureau of Consular Affairs and to express my appreciation for the support that we receive from members of Congress and your staff. The last time I had the opportunity to appear before this committee was at my confirmation hearing. Um, and at that time, I called the people of the Bureau of Consular Affairs the truest of public servants, working under sometimes very difficult conditions on behalf of the American people. And after leading the Bureau for two years, my admiration has only grown, and it is a tremendous honor for me to be here today to directly represent the work of my colleagues. The 13,000 people of the Bureau of Consular Affairs serve your constituents 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all across the United States and the globe. Mr. Chairman, in 2022, thanks to the efforts of our consular teams overseas, more than 18,000 international students studied in New Jersey, contributing over $700 million to your state's economy and supporting more than 7,000 New Jersey jobs. Ranking Member Risch, last fiscal year, we issued nearly 6,000 visas to temporary workers, including agricultural workers, 
filling critical labor shortages for Idaho ranchers, farms, and businesses. Around the world, consular officers are protecting the lives and serving the interests of U.S. citizens and safeguarding our national security. They are present for your constituents' best and worst moments, births, deaths, adoptions, and illness. They worked in person, both domestically and overseas during the pandemic, to keep serving the public at great personal peril. Just last month, I attended a ceremony at the department to honor Tom Wallace, a consular officer who helped U.S. citizens repatriate from Peru back to the United States in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic before losing his life to COVID-19. His name deserves a place in the congressional record. When I have the opportunity to travel to our 29 passport agencies and centers and more than 240 overseas posts to meet directly with these extraordinary teams, I highlight three key priorities for the Bureau all of which I look forward to talking about today. First, the safety and security of U.S. citizens overseas. As I mentioned earlier, this is the Bureau and the Department's highest priority. Diplomats have been working to protect the lives and vital interests of U.S. citizens abroad since before the United States had a constitution. It is our highest and most enduring purpose. Most recently in Sudan, we evacuated more than 2,000 U.S. citizens and their family members, along with lawful permanent residents, locally employed staff, nationals from allied and partner countries in a complex multinational effort. Second, we're focused on maintaining record productivity in the face of unprecedented passport and visa demand. Demand for both U.S. passports and visas to the United States are at all-time highs. At the same time right now, more people than ever before have the ability to travel to and from the United States. 46% of Americans today have passports, up from 30% in 2008 and just 5% in 1990. On the inbound travel side, more than 50 million valid visas are in the hands of foreign travelers. More people can visit the United States today than at any time in our history. These numbers are only growing, and the Bureau of Consular Affairs is committed to meeting the demand today and in the future while rigorously safeguarding our national security. While we remain focused on addressing historically high demand for passport and visa services, we're also planning for a more agile, optimized future. To that end, our third priority is modernizing consular systems and technology. For example, before the end of the year, five million Americans will be able to renew their passports entirely online, a major milestone in fulfilling our federal customer service goals. We cannot make meaningful progress on these priority areas without sustained and significant investments in our IT infrastructure and staff. I am grateful for Congress's partnership during the darkest days of the pandemic when our fee-funded bureau took a sudden 50% decline in revenue. Your appropriation and authorization to use consular revenue more flexibly has been the most important factor on our road to building a Bureau of Consular Affairs that is ready to tackle the challenges of the 21st century. Making these, authority, these flexible authorities permanent would ensure that we are able to weather any future contingency. I thank you again for your continued partnership, and I look forward to our discussion here today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um We'll start a round of five-minute questions. Uh, as, as you know, uh, back in April, I highlighted in a letter to you long delays 
uh, that New Jerseyans and Americans were facing to renew their passports um, and encouraging to work uh, to bring their time frame down. Uh, but some uh, of my constituents have been shocked to learn that they still have to wait at least three months to get their passport renewed. So what news can you give us uh, and Americans across the country who may be watching this hearing about the status of how long it's going to take to pr uh, process a passport? Could you put your microphone back on, please? Thank you for the reminder. And thank you for the question. I appreciate the opportunity to address it. We're working very hard on all fronts to meet what is absolutely unprecedented demand. Um, last year, we issued a record 22 million uh, passport books and cards. And this year, we're on track to exceed that record, maybe by as much as 15%. Um, so as a result, processing times for passports are longer than we would like. Uh, we work very hard and, and in coordination with your staffs, for which we're very grateful, to publicize these times widely to help travelers plan uh, to, to make their travel plans. Um, I can talk a little bit about what we're doing to manage this demand. Um, obviously, our hardworking passport uh, teams are on the front lines of this, of this issue at our 29 agencies and centers. They are working at tens of thousands of overtime hours, um, 170,000 just since the beginning of the year. We're also aggressively hiring to augment the team We've increased our staff by 10% this year, and we have about 10% more in the pipeline. We have teams of volunteers from across the department working on surge teams, including retirees, uh, adjudicators uh, from, who have, have retired, and uh, volunteers from our own headquarters staff, as well as new officers who adjudicate passports before they head out to their so how long? How long is the backlog now? It takes about 10 to 13 weeks for us to, for, for regular processing time uh -huh. for a passport. When, and when would you expect to have it cleared up? Um, the 10 to 13 weeks is an accurate representation of what it is taking us now to, to, um, to process passports. We don't anticipate raising that this year at all. Um, passport demand tends to be seasonal. Um, I'm reluctant to make predictions because this year's. So, do you have a backlog? We have what we have is passports waiting to be adjudicated. The 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 processing time is a result of truly unprecedented demand. So, you're saying that uh, after the pandemic, the backlog that got created by that and all that that's cleared. It's just that the regular normal time for processing a passport is 13 weeks. Um, I can explain, if you don't mind, I can uh, contextualize a little bit this, the, that question, and it has to do a little bit with staffing, and it is not unrelated to the pandemic. When, we, um, when the pandemic hit and we lost 50% of our revenue overnight, um, we were, thanks to appropriations, we didn't have to fire people, but we did have to freeze positions. And so our passport adjudicators were working in person, um, and during that time period, uh, they worked in person all through the pandemic. But as you know, not everybody is able to do that. And our staff contracted during that period. So we, um, when passport demand came back and we were able to ha start hiring people, we were working from a deficit. So um, really what we're dealing with is in pent-up demand from 
the pandemic, when, when travel returned in late 2021, people were ready to travel again. Um, and our staff, it takes just a while to hire them, it takes a while to bring them on, and we also needed to wait for passport revenue to come back before we even had the funds to hire them. So we're 10% up this year, um, and we are, uh, we have 10% in the pipeline now. I, I appreciate all that, but I, I think you failed to understand my question. Is the answer to this question that it is now going to take 13 weeks on average to expect to get your passport process? Yes or no? Into the future, we do not intend for that to be the, the, the uh, permanent wait time. Um, you'll see in the, our- the, the future is very, uh, you know, uh, uh, infinite. Um, so the future being in two months, in six right. months, in a year, I, I'm trying, uh, you know, <laughs> Our, from my perspective, my role here is not to be adversarial, but I also need to understand in order to help. And I don't quite get from your answer what it is that is necessary. It is not, let me take this position. It's not acceptable to wait 13 months, uh, I mean 13 weeks or three months for a United States citizen to get a passport. So we have to do better. The question is what is it that we need in order to do better? If that's additional staffing, if that's additional resources, uh, if I, I don't know what it is, right. but I'm trying to glean that from you. I got, I got everything you said. I appreciate the, the past. I appreciate the backlog. I appreciate the pandemic consequences. But that doesn't tell me how we're going to stop 13 weeks being the norm and in what time frame we can do that. So one, what is, I have a lot of questions, but I'm going to turn to my colleagues. One is, what do you need... To, to bring that 13 weeks dramatically down, and two, assuming you get that, how long will it take to bring it down? So thank you for clarifying your question, Senator. Um, what you will see in our 2023 ops plan and also our FY24 budget is requests for more staffing. Um, so that's one thing that, that is one way that we're going to address it. We don't want to go into the future trying to hire and overtime our way out of these challenges. I mentioned the, um, the increase in percentage of Americans who have passports because we don't see this as an anomaly. We see this as a trend. The way that we would like to address it into the future is by bringing on more staff so we can handle this and also investing in our, our technology and modernizing our processes. But is, is, is the request in the budget, assuming it's granted, going to now uh, significantly reduce the wait time? What do, you, what do you think is the right wait time for an American to wait for a passport? Um, I, 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 Senator, I agree with you that our wait times right now are, are, are too long. Um, I, I would have to is check. Is the budget request going to ultimately help you reduce that significantly? Over the long term, we, we anticipate that this is a trend that we're going to have to address. And, and it will, if we can hire the people that we need to address these long-term challenges and improve our technology. I'll come, I'll come back to you. Senator Rich. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I concur with the chairman here. We certainly uh, uh, don't want to be hostile here. This isn't a partisan issue, obviously. This is an American issue. We're all in this together trying to get it done. Um, so tr trying to drill down, I, I, the chairman was trying to get at uh, how long the, the people should have to wait. 
Do you have a goal? I mean, is there a stated goal that if somebody in New Jersey or Idaho or Utah or wherever, Nebraska, Nebraska don't forget Nebraska. <laughs> Do they get? Do they? Have, yes, we have all right. Anyway, um, what what uh, what should the what should be a reasonable expectation on a person's part? Forget everything else. Just from your experience, what should be? Is it something like two weeks or three weeks or what? What what should the expectation be? It's a little bit hard for me to answer that question with the. What we, what we do is we try to give the American public an accurate, uh, just an accurate picture of how long it will take so that they can plan their travel and so that they don't make plans without checking their passport. So, so when, you get, when you give those expectations to the American public, what is that expectation? That's what we're after. What are you giving to the American public as that expectation? Uh, the expectation right now is, is the processing time. It's 10 to 13 weeks. Um, and I, I know that you're trying to get at what's our goal, what is reasonable, sure. what is the shortest number. And I, I, what I'd like to do is check and see what it was before the pandemic. But I, I will say that passport demand is seasonal. And there are times during the year where it's higher and times during the year where it's lower. And we have consistently and historically let American citizens know how long our processing takes. Mm -hmm. I, I think the challenge that we're facing now and that we, we hear from your constituents and we hear very clearly from you. So do we. I know. Um, is that uh, the, the timing, uh, we, we have an overwhelming demand right now. And so in giving an accurate portrait of the travel time, it is just more than people are expecting. You know, I think one thing that might be helpful is, uh, I find when, when somebody calls in and I chat with them, they are totally taken aback at how long it takes. And they're, they, they say, well, you know, we didn't, we don't, we didn't hear anything about this. And, and I think that's a fair statement by them in that I know the department wants to get the word out. You certainly do. Now, maybe you ought to do it in public service announcements or, or something, but there needs to be a better penetration into the American public psyche about how long it takes for the passports. Those of us that move in these kind of circles, we understand this, but the average person who maybe goes to Europe once in their life uh, and needs a passport, they don't think about it until, uh, un until it becomes a, a problem. So, uh, maybe some penetration there would help, and and I understand you still you're you're getting over the backlog. Uh, uh, I get that, uh, but um, in any event, uh, I, I think uh, I, I, it take it's going to take more. There's no question about it. I appreciate your comment about the six thousand work visas for Idahoans, but that's a drop in the bucket. With you know we're we're two million people, and uh, and it that, that there's a, there's a lot more uh, need there. Um, I only got a short time left, but. Uh, a, a lot of us were very concerned about what happened in Sudan. As you know, there was a considerable criticism for the State Department and how that was handled. Can you, can you give us a, a thumbnail executive summary of what you think went wrong there? And Thanks. admittedly, some things went right, but nobody focuses on that. They focus on what went wrong. <laughs> so that's what I want to hear about. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I appreciate your asking the question. I, it's um, in... It was a very difficult situation in Sudan, as I think that you know. Um, Has been for a long time. Right. And, and we've, I appreciate your mentioning that. We've, we've been advising Americans not to go to Sudan for 
a long time, in fact, if they were there to leave. Um, the situation evolved very, very quickly. Um, what I will say about this evacuation um, is that it was um, really a true multinational effort, and it, it assured the safe departure of 2,000 uh, American citizens, family members, and, and others, as well as thousands of, um, of nationals of, our, of, of other countries. Um, we facilitated, I think as you know, you know three overland convoys, um, and we also worked with our partners and allies to make sure that U.S. citizens were able to access um, allied flights that, that went out out of the airport. Um, it took considerable diplomatic effort to make sure that we were able to conduct these evacuations and able to, to make the airport safe um, so that American citizens could leave that way with the assistance of our partners and allies. And, you know, whether, it, again, it was an unusual situation that it was really, truly multinational. And so whether an American citizen left on a flight that had a British flag on it or a French flag on it, um, they helped with, they, they left with the, depart, the assistance of, of the United States government and the facilitation of, of our task force and, and our folks on the ground. Um, I want to highlight one thing that um, I, I think is important. You know, our, our, land, our land convoys are really, really important for American citizens. I know that you're aware that American citizens often um, uh, are closely related to non-American citizens. Um, and, and that's why in many instances, even though we advise American citizens to leave, it's really difficult for them to do so um, because they don't want to leave extended family members or even close family members who might not be documented for onward travel to the United States. The, the convoys really helped those people to get to safety from Khartoum uh, to Port Sudan. Um, and they might not have been able to leave otherwise. It might have been difficult for them to get on flights that would have to land in a, a third country. So it was a really important uh, tool for us and also for uh, our partners and allies. Thank you. My, my time's up. Just let me say uh, one of the things my staff has been after, uh, as you know, trying to get your input as to what plans you have for future situations like this that happen in the area. And we haven't gotten that yet, so I hope you'll you'll uh, double your efforts to get back to them on those uh, on those inquiries. Thank you. Thank you, you Senator. Thrilled to call Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I uh, appreciate the work that you do. It's not an easy task by any means. I, I would note that in this day and age, I think it's unreasonable to expect Americans to think it's going to take them months to get a passport, particularly a passport renewal. Um, uh, because they can, uh, if they apply for a credit card where they're going to get thousands of dollars of credit from a bank, uh, they can get the card in days. Uh, and yet uh, an, an American citizen who's had a passport for 50 years uh, can wait months and months to get a passport. It just doesn't, just doesn't make sense. I think we may need to adjust our, uh, what the requirements are to get a renewal, what the, uh, what the technology is that we use to, uh, to make that happen. I would also note that uh, my home state of, of Utah is, if not the fastest growing state in America, close to the fastest growing state in America, uh, the demand for consulate services is enormous, in part because of the commerce there, but also because we have thousands upon thousands, some 50,000 missionaries leaving from Salt Lake City uh, every, um, uh, every year. Um, and, uh, and the Mountain West region, and particularly uh, Salt Lake City, is in if what I'll call a passport service desert. 
the nearest passport agencies are, which are required for in-person uh, visits are some eight hours away. Um, we have, uh, I, I listened to the chairman indicate that in New Jersey population, how, how big is New Jersey, 10 million? Nine million. Uh, you know, my state's one-third that size, and yet we have 200 people right now that are working through my office for emergency uh, help. We have the, the four people in our, in our office uh, that are doing nothing besides emergency passport requests. Um, and, and so and the number of, of concerns we have is an enormous uh, list. And so I would uh, encourage you uh, to uh, fulfill the... Uh, the legal responsibility in the law that was passed last year asking for the State Department to report on the, uh, the geographic diversity and accessibility of passport agencies. That's due uh, in a couple of weeks, and, and I expect that you'll be able to perform that as, uh, as required by law. Um, and I know that you, you're anxious to make that happen. I, I would also hope that there's a way to increase uh, staffing perhaps I mean I'd like to build offices with physical presence but perhaps at least pilot projects of some kind that allow us to have uh, individuals surged in areas like uh, like Salt Lake City or somewhere in the Intermountain West uh, Boise or wherever where where we can get uh, services for people in the Intermountain West without having to drive as many as uh, as eight hours for uh, the uh, the needs for in-person uh, views I, I would uh, I'd also note that uh, in, uh, in places like Israel, I, I thought it was interesting when they do the, the uh, homeland security checks for Israel, uh, they ask medical students, law students, people receiving student loans to surge capacity uh, to do interviews. Uh, and I, and I, I don't know what the opportunity is at the State Department to say, you know, we've got a lot of kids getting uh, loans. We've got people in medical school. We've got people in law school. Uh, we could have them come in for summer work. If you have surges in the summer or the spring, uh, train them, uh, qualify them, pay them, bring them in, uh, and have them help uh, do some of the work that, that uh, you're doing. Uh, I, I would note that this, I would expect the surge to continue to grow with, uh, with the Paris Olympics next year. People are going to be uh, wanting to go to the Olympics, wanting to go to Paris, and like most Americans, they think that if they got three or four weeks before they go, that they ought to be able to get their passport renewed. And they don't realize it's going to take 13 weeks because that's not the way anything else in America works. It's only dealing with government that things take this long. And so we, we basically have to get government to act more like uh, some of the services we receive in the private sector. Um, finally, I would uh, ask that uh, if you have data that you look at to see how you're doing, average length of time for a renewal, average length of time for a first-time passport, percentage of people who uh, can't get their passport within that average, how many are, you know, how many are above, how long the delays are. Uh, if you have data of that, that nature, I would love to see it. I'd, I'd request that you provide it to this committee so that we can actually measure how we're doing. I'm sure you have that. And you're able to look at it, how many applications you receive. But, but can we get granular data from you on how uh, this system is working. I think we desperately need it uh, and, and hope that you will be able, one, to report on the uh, progress towards uh, a regional assessment of our uh, needs, but two, uh, information on how well we're performing. I know I didn't get a question in there, but I had, <laughs> I had a lot I wanted to say, and I think I, I see you nodding, so I'm, I'm assuming you, you find those things to be acceptable. Is that right? Um, absolutely. And I, I, um, if I, may I respond just very briefly? You, you may, but I want to add one more. Uh, yes, please. One more small thing. I won't ask the audience this, but if my passport says it's going to expire in six months, 
I would expect if I was going to leave, let's say when it's got three months left, that I could go to Mexico and come back. I think every American I know is shocked to find out that when your passport expires in six months that you can't leave, that you can't leave the country. You have to include on the passport some kind of notice that says you may not leave the country if the passport expires within six months. Uh, and, and it may just be to some countries, but gosh, this is, a, this is one of the reasons we have this huge backlog with emergency services. I'm sorry. No, I really appreciate it, and I appreciate the feedback. And I think people are surprised by this six-month requirement that a lot of countries have. So it's something that we include in our outreach, but I, clearly it's really hard to penetrate um, uh, when people aren't thinking put, about Put a it. sticker on the passport that says this, this will not be valid going into many countries uh, if your passport expires within six months. Yeah. Um, we, we have QR codes that lead to our public information, but you're right, that's something very much that should be highlighted in particular because it is really surprising. I also just want to briefly uh, highlight a couple of things, and thank you for raising the issue of, of geographic diversity of our passport agencies. It's something we, we really monitor a lot. We collect a lot of data on it. Um, there are, you know, I can throw out... Um, statistics at you, which will be unsatisfying, but um, we think that the best way for us to be able to serve the American public is through modernizing our systems and, and being able to, to surge our hiring. Um, there are, uh, it, it's really only about 5% of Americans who need access to emergency services for passports, and we, we do have procedures in place, and we work very hard, including with all of your staffs, for which we are enormously grateful to make sure that we are aware of those cases and they're drawn to our attention. And sir, if there are cases in Salt Lake City that you need us to be aware of, we, are, we, we would really be grateful if you could set us up for success and let us know. Um, the one other thing I want to say, and it's, it's really true, um, hiring, um, we, we've, we've increased our staff 10% this year, um, and we have more in the pipeline. You know, these are national security. Every passport's a national security decision. Um, and bringing folks on in these positions, uh, hiring, training, clearing, and, and, um, and making sure that they are suitable to have this really challenging job with a great deal of responsibility does take time. And it's something that we're working at very, very closely. And we're grateful, really grateful, mm -hmm. to the support of, for the support of Congress in expanding our spending authorities and allowing us to be able to move funding more flexibly to be able to continue that hiring. So I want to end with, with thanks, not just for the feedback, but also for all of the support. Just two final notes. 50 is the present backlog. We have a continuously uh, process of closing them successfully, many. So if I were to say how many do we get over the course of a year, probably over 1,000. Uh, but 15% uh, of... Yeah, 15% though of the American people who may need emergency services, uh, is that what you said, 15%? I'm sorry, sir, it was 5%. If 5%, I wasn't I'm sorry, 5% of the, as I was calculating, is about 15 million people. That's still a lot of people. Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And Assistant Secretary Bitterford, first of all, thank you very much for your service to our country and your long career in the Foreign Service. And I want you to know that I walked into this committee hearing sympathetic because I ran a business that experienced rapid growth and had to address customer needs. And I know it's a challenge. You've got to bring on people, and I'm glad to hear that you're trying to get uh, hired up as well. 
But that's not going to solve your problem. You need to address the system that you've got in place to be able to do that. It, right now, do you have a backlog? I was given information that you've got a backlog of about 3 million passports. Is that accurate? Uh, it, we, waiting to be processed, we may have slightly less than that now. Slightly less than 3 million uh, to passport. I can tell you, again, just sharing the experience in Nebraska, that a few years ago, it was a couple of months that we would get asked for help, I'm told, uh, in the Senate office. My casework now is saying we're getting five or six a day. And so I know that, for example, when you start, when you're not processing things in a timely manner, that actually adds to your work. You need to address the systems, and I'm looking at uh, some information I was given here that a recent State Department Inspector General report found that consular affairs did not effectively manage its responsibilities related to passport IT modernization activities, and that interdepartment planning lacked project management processes, timelines, and milestones for key implementation decisions. And you just told us you don't even have a goal that you're trying to reach to be able to get to about, whether it's two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, down from your 10 to 13 weeks. Again, I've run large organizations, including most recently the state of Nebraska. If you don't set a goal, you are not going to get this number down. You have to set a goal first so that you can work backwards. Remember, we all have heard it. Start with the end in mind. Secretary Bitter, you've got to start with a goal first. Second thing, have you heard of uh, Lean Six Sigma, which is a process improvement methodology? I would strongly recommend, I don't see it in your background, but get somebody on board who understands Lean Six Sigma. At the state of Nebraska, we successfully implemented that. We did like 900 projects, 900,000 hours of saving our teammates' time, but basically it reduces the steps. So for example, when we were doing an air construction permit, it was 110 steps long. We cut it down to 22, and we cut the time down from 190 days down to 65 days. It sounds like when I listen to the problems you have, if you implement something like Lean Six Sigma, you will be able to help address some of these issues. And it gets back to, again, just making sure that you're setting goals and benchmarking it. Um, one of the things I believe that the previous administration did is that they released the number of pending passport applications um, and updated that figure weekly. Are you doing that? Are you releasing your backlog and updating that weekly? Releasing publicly, sir? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not aware that we are. Would you be willing to consider then? Would you commit to releasing that number so we can, again, getting back to the chairman's point, help track where you are going with regard to your progress? We're very happy to consider any suggestions that the committee has. Yeah, I, I, would, I think that would, again, helping us be able to understand where things are rolling out and how things are going to be able to do that. Um, I also wanted to hit upon two other topics, and I know I've only got a, a limited amount of time. First of all, with regard to what Senator Romney was saying, again, Nebraska, uh, the nearest office, if you're driving, is Minneapolis or Chicago. It's at least a six-hour drive. We just had a father and a young daughter having to drive there, so anything we can do to kind of mitigate that. Kansas City, I would love Omaha, but uh, anything like that if you can do it. And then um, you talked about the uh, consular, your decline in the consular service revenue. And I believe that you've requested a statutory change in authorities, but um, you haven't documented the analysis to support these requests. And um, as a res uh, you know, I guess my question is, why is the State Department unwilling to uh, apply the GAO's recommendation to perform and share the analysis with policymakers that are, so we're able to understand the impacts 
before taking legislative action. Again, my concern is if you're going to change something in statute without providing a business case, that we're going to make have unintended consequences. Is there a reason why the State Department hasn't wanted to follow GAO, GAO's recommendation with regard to coming back with a, a plan on this? Um, thanks. Thank you, Senator. There's a, a lot to unpack there, so please let me know if there's if I'll dive in and you let me know if there's things that you need for me to address specifically. Um, I, I want to just back up for on a couple of things, and I'll, I'll start actually if, with the, our request for um, for expanded spending authorities, which I think is one of the things that you've referred to. When the pandemic hit and we lost 60 or 50 rather percent of our revenue overnight, this the the Congress came to our rescue with appropriations. The other thing that it came to our rescue with was expanded spending authorities, which allowed us to um, to move money, to move our resources to where challenges were emerging for us, just to more flexibly use the revenue that we had. And I'll give you an example of how we were able to use that, which is um, we were able to use increases in passport uh, fees because we're completely fee-driven. We were able to use increases in passport demand uh, to be able to hire overseas uh, adjudicators for our, our visa work, which is not something that we would have been able to do before. Those, um, those authorities expire year to year and need to be renewed. And what we're seeking is for them to be made permanent so that we're better able to plan along the lines of the, the, the challenges that we've had that you've identified with respect to IT and hiring. We want to be able to have a, a, a more secure year-to-year -year ability to plan for those big, uh, those big items, and expanded spending authorities will allow us to do that. I can yeah. see that you want to jump in. Yeah, no, I'm just going to, my time's up, so I'm going to interrupt you here and just say, if you're going to want to make these changes, I can't support anything without a plan, and that's where I think that, again, the GAO recommended a, a develop a plan, um, you know, something about the cost model output is sufficient for the purpose. Again, just making sure we're lining up the what you're charging for what the costs are right. so we don't overcharge people. So I would recommend that you follow the GA GAO's plan and on that. I actually, I would love if you are willing, Senator, for our staff to give you a briefing on that. We are, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, That'd be great. We are very data-driven res with respect to how much we charge the public. Thank you. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, great to see you, uh, Assistant Secretary Bitter. And a lot of my colleagues have covered the territory I was going to cover, including uh, Senator Ricketts uh, just now. Um, so I want to turn to a couple other uh, issues. As you say in your testimony, our State Department personnel overseas um, could not operate successfully without loyal, uh, locally employed staff. They are, as you say, the lifeblood of our operations. And they often put themselves at great risk. In fact, just three weeks ago, three members of our team, our embassy team, uh, foreign nationals in Nigeria, were brutally murdered in the line of duty, doing an advance, doing advance work for an AID uh, DART team. For over 70 years, uh, we've allowed these individuals, after long and faithful service, to emigrate to the United States with their families. Right now, we're facing a 14-year backlog between the time someone retires after 20 years of service and their ability to emigrate to the United States. Uh, this week, Senator Tillis and I will introduce legislation called the Grateful Act uh, to address this issue. I just have one simple yes or no question for you on this matter. Is passage of this legislation a top priority for the State Department? Yes. 
appreciate that. And I look forward to working with um, others uh, to get that done. Uh, I want to ask you about a a letter. Was that a leading question? (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Uh, I want to ask you, Madam Assistant Secretary, about a letter uh, that Senator Schatz, uh, myself, and 14 others uh, sent to Secretary Blinken and and Mayorkas. Um, We sent it two weeks ago, expressing our support uh, for Israel's admission into our visa waiver program so long as they meet the requirements of U.S. law regarding reciprocal and equal treatment of all U.S. citizens, regardless of race, religion, or national origin. So I have a simple question here, too. Do you agree that the condition of reciprocity and equal treatment must be met before admission into the visa waiver program? Yes. So we asked in that letter uh, that we have a chance to meet uh, with members of the administration from the State Department uh, and uh, Homeland Security. Obviously, your portfolio is very involved with this issue. Uh, we asked for a meeting within two weeks. That was two weeks ago. Can you commit to us today that you will meet with us within the next two weeks at the latest? Yes. Thank you. Now, in that letter, we pointed to a number of statements that exist today uh, on the Government of Israel's Foreign Ministry website and other official websites uh, that, by their own terms, would effectively discriminate against certain Americans uh, based on national origin. Uh, would you agree that we could not move forward with a, a, even a trial period unless those clearly discriminatory guidelines are eliminated? Um, yes, and if I may, um, you know, we, this is an issue that we take really seriously. The visa waiver program, as you know, is an interagency program designed to, to increase law enforcement cooperation, information sharing. Um, and uh, there's a threshold question of, of, um, of visa refusal rates, but, but there are many, many um, steps that, that a government has to meet before it can be um, uh, before it can enter the program. And reciprocity is one of them, and this is an issue that we're watching closely. We take it very seriously, and we're keenly aware of the challenges that certain American citizens have had uh, at Israel's borders and checkpoints. We've made very clear to the Israeli government that in order to meet its VWP, its visa waiver program requirements, that it's going to have to treat all U.S. citizens and nationals the same, regardless of national origin. You'll have heard, I'm certain, Ambassador Nides talk about blue is blue. If you have a blue passport, you have a blue passport, and we would expect for all Americans to be treated the same. I appreciate that strong statement, and I also expect that you'll establish a system to monitor uh, compliance uh, with that provision in the event uh, that we go forward with a visa waiver program. Is that right? Yeah, it is. It it would be our expectation that they would be able to meet the requirement uh, prior to designation so that we would be able to monitor implementation. Appreciate that. Uh, last uh, question. Uh, with respect to your quest for expanded budget authority, the ability to keep some of the fees that you're not allowed currently to keep, but also more flexible use of those you are, would that significantly improve um, the wait times, which uh, I appreciate all your efforts. It is incredibly frustrating, as you know, for those of us who are dealing with this. But would, would that make a material difference in terms of your ability to reduce the wait times? Um, yes, thank you for that question. I, I'll talk just about a couple of the, the requests that we have and, and, and one other. The expanded spending authority will give us the ability to more 
the making permanent the expanded spending authority will give us the ability to more reliably plan year to year. And for things like IT, for things like hiring, these are um, uh, these are just they're issues that that bedevil us, and they require long-term planning. They are huge priorities for us, particularly in terms of passport. Um, the other thing that we're requesting is um, we, you all very kindly, Congress gave us the ability to retain the um, passport application execution fee. Um, and in FY22, the ability to spend the funds were limited to FY22, so we can now retain but not spend. And I want to link that to um, the growth in the percentage of Americans that have passports. That means that they are going overseas. And what we're seeking in being able to expend those funds is a dedicated source to be able to support them when they're overseas uh, without having to, to borrow or to steal from, uh, from visa fees. So that will give us a predictable source of funding for American citizens overseas, which is, of course, our highest priority, um, that will be able to stand withstand some of the shocks that we've experienced recently. If I could... Uh, indulge just one more um, priority, which is, um, you know, we are fee-funded and, and we are also part of the State Department. Um, we uh, rely on the management platform of the State Department for everything that we do. And so if I could make one request, it would be to consider the full funding of the State Department. Um, a strong management platform is really important for our ability to be able to to support your constituents. We rely on our very hardworking colleagues in the rest of the State Department and other bureaus for hiring, for training, for clearances, for contracts, all of the things that are important for us to be able to, to grow to meet this demand. So I appreciate your indulgence for me to be able to highlight that one priority. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I would just uh, say to uh, uh, my colleague that your legislation uh, on helping those locally uh, employed uh, as a way to accelerate their, it was referred to the Judiciary Committee because it tweaks uh, some immigration law, but to the extent that we can be helpful, I'm happy to do so. Thank you. Uh, Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch. Um, Assistant Secretary Vetter, it's good to see you in person. Thanks for the time that you spent with me on the phone. Um, I appreciate you and your staff uh, continuing to work with my team on the backlog of passports and visas. Um, we talked about this a bit yesterday. I, heard, I hear a great deal from Tennesseans about the issue with respect to EB3 visas for nurses. As you know, roughly two-thirds of the private hospital beds in America are managed out of Tennessee. Um, we feel this in a very acute manner, but it affects the entire nation. And we will have, uh, my understanding is a gap of about 200,000 nurses that we need to fill every year until 2030 to deal with the gap that's occurred because of retirements past the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I appreciate the, uh, the help that your department will provide. You and I talked about a series of data. I'm gonna put that into the QFR so I don't have to burden my colleagues with all of that, but that will hopefully inform us on the progress that you're making and give us some benchmarks moving forward. I'd like to turn my uh, next focus to an issue that concerns me and I think a great, great number of us um, with respect to how we deal with China's access to our education systems. Uh, in May of 2020, former President Trump signed Presidential Proclamation 
10043. That suspended the entry of Chinese students and researchers into the U.S. that are connected with China's military civil fusion strategy. They call it MCF. MCF is an effort by the CCP to fuse its private industries and institutions with its defense industry in order to advance China's economic and their military aspirations. This proclamation is intended to stop the CCP from stealing from the United States world-class academic and research capabilities in order to build the Chinese military. And according to an April 11th Forbes article, the proclamation denies a visa to Chinese students who studied at a particular university whether or not any negative information exists about the individual, the focus being here on the university. Um, so, Assistant Secretary Bitter, I would ask you uh, if you're willing to share the list of Chinese universities that are subject to this visa denial under the Proclamation 10043. Um, thank you for that question, uh, Senator, and I'm aware of the prohibition against uh, issuing visas to graduate students at, at certain uh, universities. I, 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 I don't know that there's any prohibition. I just need to, I, I would love to be able to check and get I'll bring something to it. your attention. It's, 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 it's a great concern of mine, but I think about the top universities, Beijing University, Xinhua University there in China. I don't believe they're on this list. Xinhua University, for example, has eight national defense laboratories. Uh, Xinhua receives funding from the PLA. Uh, Xinhua does joint training with the PLA in computer science, read cybersecurity. Um, this certainly sounds like military civil fusion to me, and I think it's something that uh, would, would be concerned to all of us. So thank you for taking a look at that. And I appreciate you getting back to me with, with where we are on that and where we may be going. Um, I'd also just like to reiterate the point that uh, Senator Van Hollen made about um, Israel and their ability to uh, get into the visa waiver program. Um, I, I think the relationship that we have with Israel is absolutely critical. Um, there's an aim for visa, for, for, I'm sorry, for Israel to meet the visa waiver program requirements uh, by September of this year. And I've seen some, some analysis that suggests that if Israel were able to participate in the program, it would result in 450,000 additional visitors coming from Israel to the United States over a three-year period. Um, if you think about that in terms of economic benefit, that would be $3.6 billion roughly of economic benefit to the United States, and it would support roughly 6,000 jobs. So I have a real interest in seeing that sort of economic engagement as a benefit of this program. And uh, it, it certainly sounds to me that you're committed to working on this. I understand the reciprocity issues that you and Senator Van Hollen discussed. I just want to make certain that you're willing and make every effort to work with Israel in helping them comply with whatever requirements may exist and stand in the way. Uh, thank you, Senator. It's, that is um, something that we work very closely with the Department of Homeland Security on, and uh, our, our colleagues there, and our, we're all very engaged on this, so thank you for raising it. We'll continue to work. Thank you. I'd very much like to see the visa waiver program put in place with our ally Israel. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Schatz. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you, Chairman. Um, I want to start um, in the Pacific Islands. Um, the Secretary's uh, FY24 budget request language uh, has planned new posts in Kiribati, Solomon Islands, Tonga, and Vanuatu. And <clears throat> it mentions funding for reporting and diplomatic security positions, but was silent on consular staffing and services. Is the department going to offer routine American citizen and visa services at each of these posts? Um, thank you for that 
that question, Senator. When, uh, when new posts open, we are part of a much broader department uh, effort to figure out what the correct footprint is, what the right staffing is. Um, one thing I will highlight is that we, we do provide visa services now to folks that are resident in, in those places. And we, we are always very attentive to American citizen services uh, wherever Americans are. Um, I think um, we're, again, as part of, I, we're still sort of figuring out what the footprint is going to look like there. But I can assure you that we will do everything that we can do to make sure that we serve the people in those communities to the best of our ability. Well, I didn't hear a yes, and I understand, <clears throat> I understand resource uh, constraints, but it does seem to me that we're <clears throat> appropriately raising expectations about the, um, <clears throat> about our relationship with these nations. <clears throat> and um, trying to be more present and trying to be more responsive. And it seems to me, especially when you're establishing a physical presence and then you have somebody coming in episodically to process some of these relatively routine um, uh, applications, it, it may undermine the basic point of all of this. And that's, that's where I'm coming from is that, you know, in for a dime, in for a dollar, that's, that's my philosophy. On the other hand, if you don't have the dollar, I get it, but I'd like us to understand this as a strategic thrust, right, of the Department of State, and if we kind of cut off our own legs by not providing the services that one would expect with a physical uh, presence, then I think, we're, then, then I think we are um, saving a little bit of money but undermining our basic strategic thrust. I, I understand, and one thing I will say, Senator, is as we're part of these planning processes, um, whether in for a dollar and for a dime, absolutely, or vice versa. Um, but we, we do spend a great deal of time trying to really ensure that, that we are projecting physical presence to the extent that we possibly can. And we're very attentive to all of the things that you just said. So I appreciate your raising them. Thank you. Um, we'll track that with you. Um, Hawaii is going to host the Festival of Pacific Arts and Culture in June of 2024. 3,500 participants, including senior officials from 28 countries throughout the Asia-Pacific region. FESPAC is a real opportunity. I mean, it's a cultural event, but it's a real opportunity to strengthen ties um, between the United States and the people and the governments of the Pacific Islands. But the success um, of this event is going to depend on efficient visa processing. For a lot of Pacific Islanders, uh, for whom Auckland and Sydney are the most convenient visa processing post, long wait times, 149 days, um, are, are at least what we're being told um, uh, is the wait time for B1, B2. Um, can I have your commitment to work with us to um, reduce those wait times, to make sure that to the degree and extent that we have an opportunity to kind of celebrate our shared values, to strengthen our friendships, and even to um, um, align better strategically? Um, but I can tell you, um, as a senator from the state of Hawaii, you know, there's a saying in Hawaii, everything in Hawaii is political except politics, which is personal. Um, and, and this is a real opportunity for us to build those person-to-person -person ties, but it doesn't work if the State Department is the rate-limiting factor. So can, can I just have your commitment to work this through? Um, oh, absolutely. And we have, sir, um, a, a business visa unit uh, that handles events and cultural uh, activities and conferences just like this to make sure that... Um, Folks are able to participate in them. Those kinds of people-to-people -people ties are enormously important. We recognize our strong responsibility in that area. 
Great. In the interest of time, I'm going to, I'm going to condense my question about uh, the Philippines and visa processing. Um, we're told it's still 149 days uh, for B1, B2, um, just to get an interview. And, um, you know, Hawaii employers in particular are, are um, asking my office to do something about that. I get that 149 days is fewer than it used to be relatively recently, but what are you doing to reduce that number of days to, uh, to, to land in a reasonable place? Right. Because 149 is better than 300. It's still <laughs> awful. I appreciate that. And, um, I, you know, if, if I could just take a minute to talk a little bit about our, the, our really hardworking teams in the field, um, where I, I really appreciate your raising this. So, you know, we've been... Um, we have been working with DHS and others to, uh, to maximize our legal authorities to waive interviews for low-risk travelers and also to take advantage of improving technology to, to just increase our global capacity. And on, in the non-immigrant visa side, the result is that now, f fiscal year to date, we, are 20, we have produced 22, issued 22% more visas than we did this time pre-pandemic, we're really extraordinarily productive. It's true that wait times for first-time tourist visas are longer than we would want at some posts, but in places like the Philippines and elsewhere, virtually every other category, um, visa wait times and processing times is at pre-pandemic levels or below. Um, I also just want to highlight that we work very closely with our colleagues at, at post to make sure that um, there are procedures in place for emergency travel. I mentioned our business visa unit. Um, we're very, very committed to this, and we're really, really proud of the work that our folks in the field have done. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, Senator Rich? Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, do you have any idea about what percentage of your applications are renewals for a passport? Um, I believe it's 25%. About a fourth of them are renewals. I, please don't hold me to that, but I will confirm and get back to you. Um, uh, Sarah Menendez and I were just talking. We did some quick research and determined that the 10-year period is statutory, which means we set it originally. We, the Congress, set it, which also means we can change it. Uh, what, uh, what would you think of the idea of uh, changing it to a point where after a person's had one for 10 years, their next application can be for a permanent uh, passport. Because look, if we got problems, we pull somebody's passport, whether it's during the first 10 years or any time thereafter. And it seems to me if they had one for 10 years and there was no problem, there's no reason you couldn't issue them a permanent passport, which of course could be terminated any time for problems. What would you think? That, that seems to me it would cut back at least some the workload you have on, on uh, applications for renewals. We'd be very happy to work with you on, on any ideas that you have along those lines, sir. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Mr. Chairman. Well, uh, whether it's permanent or a longer period of time, seems to me that there's nothing magical about the 10 years, unless either the Department or the Department of Homeland Security can give us insights as to why 10 years is magical. But if it, if it, if it isn't magical, is it something special that 10 years is the catch-all to find something, then uh, I agree with Senator Risch, we should think about extending the time period. 
it would save money, it would dramatically reduce time, uh, it would give people greater flexibilities. So I'm not sure why, uh, absent some insights, I'm not sure why we shouldn't consider statutorily uh, extending the time, and um, we look forward to having that visit with you. Uh, Senator Rich and I are going to send you a letter. I, 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 I've been you know, at this uh, 30 years, uh, and um, I'll, I'll say this my words, not yours, but there is a reticence when we're asking you what it is that you need. I don't quite get a clear picture of what you need. So, and maybe you feel that you can't ask because the department you know, doesn't want you to ask, uh, or, you know, the hierarchy. I get all of that. So I'm going to put you on the spot, uh, and I'm going to send a copy to the secretary as well, John. Um, and I'm going to ask you what authorities, resources, personnel, budget, automation, technology, or anything else that you need in order to bring this down to what I think most Americans would consider a reasonable period of time. And I would expect an answer to that in a, a very short period of time since you've been studying this. And this way, you are responding to the committee's questions. Uh, and um, nobody at the department should be upset about responding to the committee's questions. Senator Card. Well, first, Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you for holding this hearing. It's bitter. It's always good to see you. Um, I apologize for not being here for the whole hearing. I am ranking, I'm chairman of the Small Business Committee, and we were having a uh, a meeting of the Small Business Committee and that I had to participate in. And I know that the delays in passport and visa applications has been the center of this discussion today. Uh, but I'm going to sort of take this from a little bit different angle of my request. Just so you know my circumstances in Maryland, we get between one to two dozen calls a day on challenges on passports or visas or something to deal with similar situations. And we are somewhat at a loss as to how to help our constituents. That's unacceptable. I'm with the chairman. We want to make sure you have the tools so there's a reasonable process in place and you have the, we can tell that you can get your services done in an efficient way. We want all that done. But in the meantime, where we are today, our constituents need to know what path they need to take in order to be able to get the passport or visa that they need. And unfortunately, that's not the case. We hear that it may be, I don't know, six, eight weeks to get a passport, 10 weeks, 12 weeks. Uh, and uh, there's an expedited process that shortens it a little bit. There's emergency procedures that shortens it more. You need an appointment. You can't get an appointment. Your local office is closed, so you shop around the country to try to find an office where you can expedite it so people travel. And I had a person travel last week up to Buffalo from, from Baltimore in order to get a, an appointment, only to find out that one of my colleagues from New York told me they were able to get an appointment in D.C. I, it just doesn't make sense. So we need to have clear direction so that we can advise our constituents appropriately. We understand that emergencies are defined as emergency. But if a person is traveling, let's say, 10 weeks or 12 weeks from now, three months from now, they file for an application. The application for the passport renewal is not received. 
Now it's four weeks. Should they be contacting you to get it because they're now four weeks away? Two weeks. Should they be contacting you or not one week away? What, what are the rules here? Uh, unless we have some understanding of what the rules are all about, how can we help you in regards to the current situation? Yes, let's improve the current situation. Let's give you the resources you need, but we need to be able to deal with the request of our constituents so that they understand their options. So they, it, it, look, if we tell them to take six, don't, can't plan a trip unless you have six months advance notice, that's the rules. That's, we don't like it, but at least we can tell them that. So how can we get clear information out to the, uh, the people of our community? And why would it be so different for someone from Maryland having to go up to New York and someone from New York having to go back to, to D.C. in order to get their appointments? Thank you, Senator. I, um, and I appreciate the frustration that I know that your constituents are feeling, particularly about trying to find an appointment at a close counter. I'll simply say on that that our, um, uh, we, our emergency and uh, expedited services at our counters, um, they're doing globe, uh, across the network 23,000 emergency appointments a week. Um, they've added weekend hours, they've added, they've extended their hours. Um, they are, uh, it is, it is pre-pandemic and, uh, and better in terms of the number of people that they're trying to see. Um, so sometimes it's true, folks might have to travel to find an appointment. Um, we always will work with your staff, as you know, sir, and we're so grateful uh, to members and their staff for drawing cases to our attention that do require emergency appointment. Given the, the volume that we're seeing and the number of people that require appointments, we will, we will do everything that we can do to accommodate people with humanitarian emergency needs. It's a little bit harder for us always to accommodate leisure travel. What we try really, really hard to do is to publicize wait times um, so that Americans can plan their travel. We try really hard to make sure Americans understand that before you plan your trip, you should look at your passport and to take into consideration processing times. We but they don't know what the processing time is. It, it, we were told one time was eight weeks, another time was 12 weeks, and we have people who've, who couldn't get their passports within that period of time. Um, I, then yeah. there's their emergency situation, which you don't consider an emergency because it's leisure travel, but they applied 12 weeks ago, and they think they've complied with the rules. They think it is an emergency. Oh, understood. Absolutely. Um, with processing times do vary and change, and we, we keep them posted on our website. And uh, one of the things that we're very lucky to have is 29 passport agencies and centers. Um, we do a, tr a tremendous amount of outreach. We work with your staffs to try to get this information out there. Our passport agencies and centers do the same. I absolutely hear you that people don't hear it until they're until they're, they need it. So we will, work, can, we will work to ensure that we are doing everything that we can do to penetrate um, and make sure that we're getting this information out there and we are grateful for the partnership of your staffs in doing that. And, and thank you for your commitment to this. We know it's not an easy task, so thank you. Senator Booker. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I, I, first of all, I know how hard a lot of the folks work and how you share a lot of the frustrations that you're hearing uh, right now. I, I, um, you know, I, I obviously have the same experience with a lot of constituent calls and just not even understanding um, often how the wait times are, 
you know, the earliest appointments often someone can schedule come from different states. It's, it is a bit of a maze, and I'm hoping that the, the, the passion that you're hearing from a lot of the senators now could help us to lead to some solutions. And I'm wondering maybe a constructively to see about staffing vacancies in general, and to what extent are staffing vacancies at high-demand posts like in Pakistan, Nigeria, and Haiti delaying import, uh, appointments for immigrant visa applicants in regards to those countries, which we get a lot of calls, I'm sure Senator Menendez and I both, in our state of New Jersey. Right, I appreciate that question. Um, I'll talk a little bit about staffing and I'll, I'll, I'll talk just in general about our, our immigrant visa. Yeah, and, and I'm just gonna put, while you're talking about yep. vacancies, just in the same vein, does Counselor Affairs have an acute staffing shortages in, in posts that adjudicate high volumes of work study applicants, so that's another area. Um, and then something my office hears a bit about is, do you have a view that there are, are well, I'll stick with those staffing vacancy questions first. Okay, great, thank you. I, to, um, and we're, we're talking specifically about immigrant visas, so let me uh, just mention, you've mentioned our, our highest, uh, um, some of our, our are very high volume posts in that respect. So we do have um, staffing, uh, we, we have not yet, let me put it this way, um, the department has not yet filled um, all of the vacancies that were frozen. Uh, we, we froze positions during the pandemic when our, um, when our revenue went down thanks to appropriations. Uh, we, weren't, we didn't have to fire people, but we did have to freeze positions. We were able to begin hiring again um, Again, thanks to expanded spending authorities, which we hope to make permanent, uh, we were able to begin hiring again in about, I think it was January of, I, I don't quite remember, but I think it was January 21 was the first, January 22 rather, was the first class of people we were able to bring back in. So it takes time to hire and train these folks to go out overseas. And so um, we do still have staffing gaps in some of our positions, especially at some of the higher volume posts, um, because they have the most number of positions that were frozen. But we expect, the department expects to be able to fill those positions um, by the end of this fiscal year. That said, you will see in our ops plan, in our request for appropriations, we're seeking to hire even more people to be able to address what we absolutely I, believe is gonna be. A I appreciate that. I've got a really rough um, chairman here. He's tough on me, so I wanna get some more questions okay. in before he cuts me off. Um, the, the, we know that uh, the call for the uh, immediate release of Evan uh, Gershkovitz, despite concerns that Russian government is using him and other high-profile cases to gain political leverage, what role has Council Affairs played in, the, in this case of Mr. Gershkovitz? Uh, how does Council Affairs Hostage Affairs Unit coordinate with the State Department in cases like these? And is the State Department considering any policy changes for the wrongfully detained determinations and reassignment of these cases to the Office of the Special President Envoy for Hostage Affairs? Um, thank you for that. I'm going to just quickly brag about immigrant visa. Uh, we have um, reduced the backlog of cases by 24% this year, and the productivity in immigrant visas is 20% where it was pre-pandemic. So we're moving through that, and I appreciate your raising it because we know that immigrant visa and family reunification is a huge priority for Congress. So moving on to um, wrongful detention. Um, we work really closely. First of all, many, many thanks to Congress, and in particular, 
this committee and the staff of this committee for the Levinson Act, which is an enormously powerful tool in our toolkit in terms of um, identifying and figuring out what we can do to um, assist American citizens who may be wrongfully detained overseas. We work in lockstep with our colleagues in the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs Office uh, to implement the Levinson Act. Um, and we, we work with them closely to make sure that we are uh, implementing the act in the way that it was intended. One thing I will highlight with respect to the Bureau of Consular Affairs, um, we, are, um, uh, we care about all detainees. There are 1,700 plus American citizens detained overseas. And our job is to make sure that we advocate for them for the best possible treatment, that we advocate for um, their uh, for humanitarian oh, that, treatment. That, that I'm, I'm grateful for and I know a okay. lot about. Um, but I'm wondering about this specific idea of reassigning the cases to the Office of Special Presidential Envoy. Right. When somebody is determined to be wrongfully detained, the leadership of the case moves to, to the SPIHA office, we call it. Um, but the actual day-to-day um, -day visiting, the actual day-to-day -day, um, face of the department for that wrongful detainee will be a consular officer at a post overseas. Okay, and just real quick, what steps has the State Department taken in response to a, a, a criticism I hear a lot that families of U.S. citizens detained abroad receive insufficient information about their loved ones? And when Council Affairs provide a list of attorneys to U.S. citizen family members, or next of kin, does it indicate which ones speak English? If some embassies do list attorneys that speak English, what efforts is the department taking to standardize the practice at all overseas posts? This is a lot of incoming that we get. Thank you. Um, this is the first that I've heard of that complaint. Um, we do maintain lists of attorneys, and as I, I mentioned, we are um, we work really hard to make sure we're doing everything we can to support detainees overseas especially to ensure that they're connected with their families. So if I may um, have our team get back in touch with your Absolutely. team. Absolutely. Again, I, appreciate, I know from Thank working you. with your office a lot of the commitment, the people that work there, there are, there are understandable frustrations, and I hope we can just continue to work together. Oh, I appreciate it. it we, if you hear things and we don't know about them, then we can't fix them. So we're grateful. Okay. And I'll give my thanks to the benevolency of the chairman of this committee. You know, I was going to say... You, you made that comment about being tough. You're two minutes over your five minutes, which has seven minutes, and I didn't even bang the gavel. I don't know what you're talking Sir, about. Sir, your grace uh, and magnanimity uh, is, is obvious, and I'm appreciative. Senator, Senator, <laughs> Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and actually you enabled me to catch my breath and figure out what I wanted to ask. That's exactly what my purpose was in going over. <laughs> um, I know that my colleagues have raised issues about visa and passport delays, and I don't, I don't need to go into that, but the, my Virginians are experiencing the same thing. And I know there's a lot of reasons for it, the, the you know, COVID-related backlogs, et cetera. Um, also, with COVID restricting travel, everybody saved their travel, and then they all want to travel at the same time. So I, I get this, but I know my colleagues have, have asked about it, and I wanted to just put that um, on the record as well. I just hope that we can really, really whittle that down. Here's a particular one that is, uh, that is about Virginia that may not be completely in your bailiwick, but that's, that's part of the problem with this issue is everybody says it's not in their bailiwick, so, but I want to put it on state's radar screen. Um, in the fall of 2021, the Northern Virginia Emergency Response System, ENVERS, which is a coalition of Northern Virginia local governments, especially health departments, 
at providers like Inova, our largest uh, hospital organization, Inova, stepped up to provide vital support in terms of patient tracking, transport, um, and, and medical service for the evacuees who were coming uh, to the United States from Afghanistan. Um, most of the evacuees from Afghanistan came into Dulles Airport. A few, a small percentage started to come in through the Philly Airport, but they came to the Dulles Airport. They were initially processed at a convention center near the Dulles Airport, and during this processing, they had medical needs. There were pregnant women, there were people that were being tested for COVID, were testing positive, so they had a lot of medical needs. And the federal government asked the Northern Virginia um, medical community to, to step up and provide services during that really important time, and I'm really proud of the fact that our medical community did step up. Then the the um, evacuees were dispersed to eight military bases around the country, three of which were in Virginia. But in particular, during this period in Virginia, um, there is about a $687,000 bill that these the, the, the medical folks were glad to step up, but they weren't doing it for free. And they were told if they provided services, they would be reimbursed. Um, and yet they have never been reimbursed. Um, it's 687000 and they've kind of been sent around, well, no, that's DHS's issue. No, that's state's issue. No, that's HHS's issue. Senator Warner and I have been working on this. We've written a letter to all the relevant agencies and saying, well, we don't care who pays it, and if you want to divide it in three, that would be okay as well. But I remain concerned that here we are nearly two years later, and these critical partners, Enverse, who stepped up to provide services to people who needed them have yet to be reimbursed. So. I just want to kind of put that on your radar screen. And the reason, it's not just in the rearview mirror. Dulles is still being used as the place where, for example, when we bring in 220 political prisoners liberated from uh, prisons in Nicaragua, including presidential candidates that the Ortega regime threw in jail, they come in, they need medical service. The Northern Virginia community wants to be there and provide service, but the experience that they had with the Afghan evacuees makes them think, well, are they just going to tell us we'll be reimbursed and not get reimbursed? So I would like to, Secretary, um, uh, make sure my team gives you all the, the information on this, but I think these folks after two years are entitled to be reimbursed um, and not just be sent from one office to the other in kind of a shell game. Understood. I appreciate your raising it, and we'll follow up. Great. Um, one last item. In, in 2011, Consular Affairs initiated Consular One, this initiative to modernize, consolidate, or replace functionality um, of 90 different discrete consular leg legacy technology systems and put it into a single framework. Um, the OIG estimated that as of June 2021, the cost for the Consular One initiative dating back to 2011 ranged between 200 and $600 million. Now, the fact that that range is so broad and, and the OIG couldn't even say what the cost was to a more specificity than that um, is a little bit odd. The initiative predates your, your arrival at the Bureau, uh, but the OIG's most recent recommendation about this shows that there are six recommendations from December 2021 that continue to remain open without action. Do, do you know what the, the process is for implementing these remaining six recommendations about the Consular One initiative. Thank you for raising that. I, I, if I could just uh, sort of put this in a somewhat broader context, Please. including um, to highlight that, you know, modernizing our technology is 
just a hugely important part of what we need to do, uh, including hiring IT professionals and, and all of the other um, uh, uh, staff that comes along with being able to have um, a stable platform and a system that is agile enough to be able to, to not just keep up with the demands and needs, but also to help us get ahead. Um, our systems are incredibly complex. They are at 240 posts overseas, 29 passport agencies and centers domestically. They are required to be available 24-7, 365, and also to talk to all of the other national security um, systems that the U.S. government maintains. They're, they're really, really complex. Um, we have made great strides in the last several years on the, uh, to modernize and stabilize the platform. Many of our systems are 20 years old. So investing in, in the platform and ensuring that it is um, always available when it needs to be available has been a huge focus. But now we're asking, you will see in, in um, our 23 um, ops plan and our 24 budget, um, requests to be able to augment uh, and to be able to continue to invest in technology. We can't hire our way and we don't want to out of the challenges that we have in terms of increasing workload, which, which is, a, is a trend. It's not an anomaly. Here, here's what I'd like to do. I'm over my time, but I think what I'll do is I'll do a QFR, and I will list each of the six recommendations that were deemed open by the OIG in December 2021, and I'll ask what is the progress on you know, implementing or closing this recommendation. I'll just ask that about each of the six, and I think that's probably a better way to do this. Thank you. That would be great. We, have a, we would be grateful to be able to tell the story. Okay. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Thanks, Ms. Chair. Uh, some final questions, on Secretary. Whether it was three years ago when COVID-19 first hit or 2021 when Afghanistan fell to the Taliban or most recently in Sudan when Khartoum saw a rapid development of violence in the capital, the Department of State has undertaken several uh, repatriation programs for Americans abroad. And while I believe that our consular officers uh, perform admirably under the Herculean tasks they were directed to do, what are some of the big lessons uh, that the State Department has learned from these repatriation efforts? What additional or different planning structure staff or modes of operation do you think are necessary so that we're better prepared for future contingencies of this sort. I have been thinking about uh, in the State Department authorization legislation that we are doing, whether there should be a, a permanent crisis uh, uh, intervention uh, department uh, because these things are gonna happen uh, uh, and putting it all together for a specific moment whether it be Sudan or anything else, is not as good as having a system in place that can largely respond to any set of circumstances anywhere in the globe. So uh, any takeaways for the committee to, to be thinking about? Um, yes, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to, to answer that question. The, the, the Bureau is part of, as I'm certain you're aware, a department-wide and interagency effort to constantly be preparing for crises and trying to anticipate um, where they may occur. For, um, in terms of lessons learned, you know, for us, all crisis response starts with information. Um, we are, um, 
working hard to in, in, improve our delivery of information, and we're always looking at ways um, that we can assist American citizens and better inform them about changing circumstances so that they are prepared uh, and can make informed decisions about places that they travel. Um, I, I think you're, when you talk about a permanent crisis, uh, uh, standing up a permanent crisis intervention cell, I, the, the two things that that makes me think of um, our, one is contained in our, our budget request, which is um, what we would like to do is to be able to um, develop, to, part of our funding request is to, we have a 24-7 um, call center that's available to American citizens in crises. We'd like to be able to, to develop that further and to expand it, um, to be able to make it more user-friendly and more available to American citizens all the time and in a crisis as well. And the other thing that, that we've done, and this goes also to, um, to our IT infrastructure, um, one of the things that we really saw after Afghanistan was um, a real demand, a real need for us to be able to, um, to develop systems that allow us not just to track American citizens in a crisis, but also to communicate directly with them and to be able to gather better data about where they are and what their intentions are. And we developed that after Afghanistan, um, and we've been able to use it to good effect, great effect, in fact, in Ukraine and in Sudan. So when we talk about um, investing in IT solutions and being able to plan and being able to um, to to get ahead of the demands that we see. We, we want to be able to do things before we have to respond. We want to be able to plan in advance and take advantage of all of the newest technology. Should we require Americans who are traveling abroad to ultimately uh, register uh, with the State Department or with the embassy, the U.S. Embassy in that country? Because that uh, would give us a, a, to the extent that they comply, that would give us a list in the moment of emergency as to who, who is there. I, I know that there are members of, of Congress who floated that and that it's under discussion. We're very happy to participate in those conversations and you're absolutely correct that we don't track Americans and we know that Americans do not like to be tracked. Um, and so we're uh, happy to participate in any conversations. I, I don't have. see it as tracking them. I see it as protecting them. Uh, if, if I don't know you're someplace I can't protect you until you ultimately let me know that you're there. And if we're already in the crisis mode and then you let me know that we're there, it's better than not knowing, but it's not as good as knowing in advance. Um, let me turn to a different aspect of the work that you do. Uh, we've spent a lot of time on passports, uh, but uh, visa processing. Uh, my office, uh, and I suspect others, receive a regular stream of complaints about the department's transparency and communication, and sometimes its agility and responsiveness when it comes to processing visas for non-American family of US citizens to visit the United States for student visas, the work and business visas. Uh, and I get it, if you don't get a visa, you're not happy. That's not what I'm uh, concerned about. Uh, I understand the, the threshold about not being uh, 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 a public charge uh, provisions of the law, which is, uh, but here's what I often hear and personally uh, have seen experience firsthand, which is that 
uh, as someone is trying to make the case that they won't be a public charge, that they have roots in their country, that they have job, that they have maybe some money, that they have the things, uh, property, that the things that would help a council office decide whether this person is going to overstay their visa or be a public charge or anything like that, is that there is a perfunctory, uh, people tell me all the time, I went up to the, I, I waited so long, I went up to the window, I was trying to make my case, and the consular officer looked at my file and said, oh, I'm sorry, you're rejected. Even if that was the right decision, just for argument's sakes, the process of going ahead, this is America's face to the world, and that process um, in which uh, people feel that uh, they do not have a fair uh, process or transparent as to how decisions were made, uh, is there work that you are doing in this regard? I understand it's a tough job, and you can, that's why I always go see, whenever I travel abroad and visit our embassy, I always insist that the consular officer be uh, part of my meetings, uh, because I know what a tough and generally ungrateful job it is. Uh, but it still requires, we, a lot of us do tough and ungrateful jobs, it still requires doing it in a way uh, that at the end of the day puts forth the best foot of America. So w what do you do in that regard? Um, Senator, I don't know if you recall, but you raised this with me in my confirmation hearing. I was very grateful to hear it. And you also mentioned in the, in the last Chief of Mission Conference that you insist on consular officers being included in meetings. And um, I have quoted you many, many, many times. Um, so I'm really grateful to you um, for raising these issues and for, um, and, and for recognizing and highlighting the importance of our work. We are acutely aware. We are, it is our primary responsibility. Over, overseas, certainly, we are the face of America and we're, we're very aware of that. We work really, really hard in training, with our managers and with our officers to remind them that that is a privilege and a responsibility and that everybody must be treated with respect. And you know, you've highlighted some of the challenges with that. Communication is imperfect. Um, it is a, a high stress uh, situation for visa applicants. And we, we incorporate all of those things in, in our training with our officers. Um, and the other thing that we highlight for them is for new foreign service officers in particular, the reason that they, that we, one of the reasons that we ask them to do this kind of work at the beginning of their career is as a reminder that people-to-people -people ties and our ability to communicate um, and to treat respectfully host country nationals is the foundation of our work and the foundation of people-to-people -people ties, and it's really important. So I appreciate your raising, and I'll continue to quote you, um, and we'll do our best to make sure that we do everything that we can do. I to hope that, that even after someone gets the job uh, and are doing it, that there is some type of—I uh, don't want to call it sensitivity training, but nonetheless, some type of training that constantly—it's uh, basically, a, in a sense, a customer service uh, training that you know. Uh, I often have people work for me in this regard, uh, and the beauty is when somebody still doesn't achieve what they want, but they're still thankful that they had the opportunity. 
That's not an easy touch to have, but it makes the world a difference for the individual. And it's they what have, we ask. It gives them a sense that government actually is responsive to them. It is what we ask them to do, and it is, it is expected of them. Two final questions. On May 19th, the New York Times reported that in advance of their evacuation by U.S. military personnel from Sudan, U.S. diplomats in Khartoum destroyed passports left by Sudanese nationals with the U.S. Embassy prior to the April 15th outbreak of fighting. According to the New York Times, some of the destroyed passports belong to Sudanese staff members of the U.S. Embassy. Sudanese whose passports were destroyed were stranded in Sudan, unable to leave due to the lack of travel documents. Can you describe the procedures that led to the destruction of foreign passports by an embassy and how many passports were destroyed from what nationalities? And did the U.S. Embassy also destroy the passports of Sudanese staff, as reported by the New York Times? Thank you. Um, you, you know, Senator, from your travels, that uh, embassies and consulates contain a tremendous amount of sensitive material, it, whether it's classified information or PII, medical records, things like that. And there are strict rules to be followed when a post suspends operations. And for consular sections, that does include destroying passports and also controlled items like blank passports and uh, blank visa foils. So our staff did follow protocols. When, during the time on the, the task force, the Sudan task force, we became aware of some of those cases of people whose documents had been destroyed, but they still wanted to evacuate. We worked very closely with individuals um, to assist them as they tried to evacuate either on one of our convoys or uh, crossing borders. And one of the things that we did during that time, too, was we were able to replicate the consular systems in, um, in uh, Khartoum before the embassy shut down so that we could produce those documents once we were able to help well, them cross the border. I understand blank passports that are at an embassy for emergency procedures, replacements, when well, I understand those being destroyed. Why would we destroy the passport of a foreign national who is working in our embassy? I'm not aware of those cases, sir, so I need to double check and make sure you... Well, would you respond to the committee to those questions? I, yes, I want to know how many passports, pa passports were destroyed. I want to know course. from what nationalities. And I want to know, uh, did the U.S. Embassy destroy the passports of Sudanese staff at our embassy? Uh, as uh, supposedly the New York Times reports. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's important to understand uh, why, if those things happened, why they happened. Uh, lastly, um, the United States enjoys strong people-to-people -people ties with India. India is now part of the uh, Quad. Uh, we are constantly engaging it in uh, geostrategic interests that we have. New Jersey's home to a great number of Indian Americans and their families. I appreciate and applaud the department's heightened focus towards reducing wait times for first-time B-1, B-2 applicants in India. But despite that progress this past year, India continues to face the longest wait times globally, with average wait times for an appointment for the first-time B-1, B-2 applicant ranging between 450 and 600 days. Could you please speak to me as to uh, why that is the case, why it yes. takes up to 600 days uh, for an adjudication? Sure. Um, India is a place where we have historically had high demand for visas. Um, 
and there's just a tremendous amount of pent up demand. Um, it's, you know, it's one of the things about um, India that is uh, every post is unique, but they also had a really devastating bout with uh, COVID-19 quite late. Um, and so it, that their ability to, the, the pent up demand lasted quite a bit longer, but we've surged staff there. Uh, and when we did, we reduced wait times by about two thirds. Uh, we have opened appointments for Indian nationals, dedicated appointments in other posts uh, for specific appointments. And in all other categories, I, I'm sure you're aware of this and you've mentioned it, um, wait times uh, are pre-pandemic levels or better. We will adjudicate. Uh, we will adjudicate one million visas in India this year. Our productivity there is extraordinarily high. I think. Don't I probably shouldn't say this on the record, but I think we're we're at maybe even fifty-seven percent above where we were for pre-pandemic. So we're the the staff there is incredible and working enormously hard, acutely aware of these challenges and working very, very hard to address them. I appreciate that. All I'm saying is if we have a country that we are now uh, including in the quad, that we are in the midst of talking about creating a, a strategic pipeline through and all of these other things that we are weaning off uh, of Russian military equipment, all in a goal uh, as we meet the China challenge to be a more significant player with us. Part of that overall equation is making sure that we can adjudicate more actively, more aggressively. And I appreciate the size of, of the challenge, but it is also the size of the country, right? right. Uh, so it is because of that and other reasons uh, that we have decided to, to make it a significant partner. I hope we can find ways to further adjudicate and reduce that 600 right. days waiting time. For the reasons that you articulated are the exact reasons we've prioritized this and sent search teams and others. But I, I take your point. We're working very hard on it. Thank you for raising it. All right, so it. we're going to send you that uh, letter I referred to with the questions. Uh, look forward to your response. Uh, uh, the purpose of the letter is really to be helpful to you. Um, so I hope you'll uh, answer it in that spirit. Uh, let me thank you for appearing before the committee today. Uh, the record for the hearing will remain open until close of business on Friday, June the 9th. Please ensure that questions for the record are submitted no later than that date. And with that, this hearing is adjourned. Thank you.